Well, yeah, first, uh, thanks, Philip, for having me. Uh, my name is Geert Vandenbosch, and my background is uh, veterinary uh, medicine. Uh, early on in my career, I specialized in uh, virology and uh, immunology, primarily in uh, human diseases. Uh, that was uh, to begin with in academia. I then uh, moved on to industry where I uh, uh, initially worked in lay development, more kind of like project management, regulatory environment, uh, moved on to um, research and development uh, where I took a deep dive at two uh, big uh, vaccine companies in uh, adjuvants and uh, alternative routes of uh, vaccine delivery. And I then worked uh, also in vaccine discovery with global health uh, organizations. I was a senior program officer of vaccine discovery at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Also uh, worked during the Ebola crisis in West Africa a number of years ago with uh, Gavi, the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, where I was the uh, Ebola program uh, manager. And uh, I also um, yeah, worked on uh, natural killer cell uh, vaccines. That was uh, my uh, own uh, project. So uh, uh, I consider myself as a problem solver, uh, uh, putting the pieces of the puzzle uh, together. And that's why I'm primarily uh, emphasizing the, the kind of several different disciplines I touched upon, rather than explaining uh, the detail on the different institutions and universities where I uh, worked. Well, Philip, um, I would say in a nutshell, I could, I could basically summarize this in one sentence. What is extremely, from the very beginning, in fact, um, worrying me is that we don't have herd immunity. So the virus continues to evolve. The virus, you know, continues to be uh, transmitted. And um, it's very clear from all the observations from the mutation spotters that the virus continues to evolve and that this evolution has now become really a function of the immune pressure that is exerted by the population. I mean, this is largely acknowledged. This is not new. This has been published early on that uh, initially we had... Um, let's say, these converging mutations that were clearly by molecular epidemiologists were due, according to their analysis, were due to the uh, immune pressure exerted by the population. And um, we have, even after the advent of Omicron, everybody thought, well, Omicron is going to be uh, a blessing. But uh, basically, after the immune system uh, you know, got an opportunity to catch up a little bit and uh, to make the, uh, the disease, uh, well, in some cases, even asymptomatic. We have seen that still after vaccine breakthrough infections, for example, the immune system was still not capable of controlling the virus and the virus has continued to evolve. And um, what we see right now, to cut a long story, sh uh, long story short, is that we are we have seen that the virus became more and more infectious which was in fact pretty logical since most of the immune pressure uh, was exerted on spike protein and spike protein is responsible for viral infectiousness uh, but recently and and that is where again once again i was uh, ringing the alarm bell 
when I heard about mutations uh, in GN1, this descendant uh, from BA286, that was characterized not only by additional changes in spike protein, but primarily also by changes in other viral proteins that were for me very clearly reflecting uh, that the virus is uh, experiencing immune pressure no longer on, on you know, specific epitopes of spike protein, but on its infectiousness in general. And uh, now, you know, you remember at the beginning, everybody was saying, well, GN1, uh, it's highly infectious and it becomes more and more dominant. That's what we're seeing right now, that, you know, uh, it, it uh, continues um, to, to dominate and it's prevailing in, in more and more countries. But uh, what we have seen uh, as well is that, uh, you know, whereas people were initially saying, well, don't worry too much because it's more infectious, but there is no proof whatsoever that it is also more virulent. And what we are recently seeing in, in a number of publications is that people are now showing that due to, you know, some mutations, for example, these flip mutations, the virus is more fusogenic. So there is more the fuso, fuso, fusogenicity for those who don't know is correlated, so to say, with the virulence of the virus. And uh, that is very, very strange because initially nobody was saying, well, you know, the GN1 could be more virulent. And now all of a sudden there is this findings in vitro that it is neurophysiogenic, which would be correlated to, you know, more virulence. And um, uh, what is very interesting is that I al I've always been saying that since the advent of Omicron, where we had this, remember, antibody-dependent enhancement of infection, that these very same antibodies that would enhance the infectiousness of Omicron were also protecting against virulence. Now, if you start to analyze this, for example, in vitro, so in the absence of the virulence-inhibiting antibodies, you will see, of course, that you have these indications of enhanced virulence, fusogenicity, whereas you will not see them in vivo, in the field, as long as people have you know, high enough concentrations of these non-neutralizing antibodies. What it illustrates for me now the fact that we have these rising rates of hospitalization and deaths in, in a number of countries, in, in many countries actually, is that most likely the concentration of the non-neutralizing antibodies starts to decline so that now the picture in vivo is more and more reflecting what people are seeing in vitro in the absence, of course, of the non-neutralizing antibodies, namely that we are starting to see you know, indications of enhanced virulence. All this taken together is for me simply confirming what I have been predicting already a long time ago, that once the virus would have achieved its maximum infectiousness, and according to a number of virologists, the, you know, the, the level of infectiousness that GN1 has now achieved is really maximum. Many of them are saying it's, one cannot imagine that the virus could even become more infectious than it is already. When that stage is achieved, in order for the and the virus is still under pressure, there is still pressure on viral infectiousness and transmission. Is that the virus will now shift to enhanced virulence, to you know, whereas 
you know, uh, in, in the beginning or whereas before, it was enhancing its intrinsic infectiousness to transmit, to increase the chances of transmission from one person to another. It's like it's now increasing its chances of disseminating within the body itself to ensure its continued propagation. So this is very, very worrisome for me because it's simply, in fact, confirming what I've been predicting based on my analysis of the immune pressure put on the virus. And now it becomes obviously more and more reality in a sense that according to my humble opinion, the increase that we are seeing right now in hospitalizations and death rates is for me the prelude only to a massive, a massive change that the virus will undergo to overcome collectively, not just in a limited number of people, but to overcome collectively the immune pressure that is now put on viral virulence by virtue of the declining concentrations of the non-neutralizing antibodies. Uh, yeah, well, uh, <clears throat> I think it's um, what, what people need to understand is that the some of the, as, as Rob was pointing out, some of these immune mechanisms that are in place right now are indeed not sustainable, that can be immunologically explained. And, um, but it's not like all of a sudden this kind of immunity is going to appear from one day to another uh, in all of the population. So it starts to decline. That is where you reach suboptimal levels. And that is where you start to select some variants that are able to overcome the suboptimal immune pressure. And I think the most, what, it, what may be difficult for people to understand is why would you all of a sudden have this spectacular mutation that I'm talking about? It is because nevertheless, when you consider, you know, the, uh, the entire population, if you consider the entire population, there will always be still a big chunk of the population that is protected and that is relatively well protected, uh, for example, you know, against the transmission, against the disease, etc. And this will hamper the propagation of the virus, even though some people have already lost that immunity and the virus can cause in a certain percentage of the population, for example, severe disease, what we are seeing right now, as Shankara was pointing out, still the bulk of the population is still enough protected to kind of generate a very annoying situation for the virus in terms of ensuring its survival and its propagation. And that is, that is where the virus, just as we have seen with Omicron, will all of a sudden, really all of a sudden, undergo a spectacular mutation to make sure that now it can overcome the residual defense mechanisms that were still existing in the, all the rest of the population. That is what the virus needs to do to ensure its propagation. And then what is also, second point, and then I will stop, very important for people to understand is that whenever you have an infectious virus that can cause, 
you know, that can destroy cells, you know, that is cytolytic. And many viruses are cytolytic, and SARS-CoV-2 is a cytolytic virus. So whenever you have a virus that can infect and destroy cells, and you have no longer sufficient immunity in place, uh, as Rob was pointing out, innate immunity didn't get trained and the adaptive immunity got derailed, then every single virus, again, that can infect cells and destroy cells in the absence of sufficient immunity is per definition highly virulent. People always think, you know, there is this aspect that conditions infectiousness and then there is this aspect that conditions virulence, etc. If you take away the immune response, the immune defense, a virus that is infectious, viruses, living viruses are infectious, and that can destroy cells, is per definition going to become highly virulent. And that is my fear that once we will have reached this point where the virus will have undergone this dramatic mutation that will overcome the last line of immune defense that is still in place and that we know is not very robust, as again, Rob was pointing out, that then what we will see is just a huge, a huge wave of severe disease. Philip, the, 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 the answer is no, because, you know, what you have to think about is, and, and frankly speaking, you know, I, I don't care which antiviral it you know it's the only the only possibility we have is to prevent the infection but if you think about it you know you will need an antiviral that you know is safe is very very safe right it also need to be widely widely available Look how many countries we have been vaccinated. And, and you know, I, I think maybe this was before our session, uh, Shankar uh, pointed out, uh, it doesn't make sense to do this in a, in a few countries. You need to do this uh, globally. And then it also needs to make, make, be made available at affordable cost. I mean, these are three points, three things we all agree upon. Affordable cost, sufficient supply, uh, it needs to be uh, safe and widely available. Uh, we, we don't even need almost to, to talk about efficacy, but we know that is monoclonals, right? That is what is the virus has been working on, is to develop resistance against those monoclonals. So obviously the, the, the other medications we are talking about have like multiple pathways where they can curtail the you know, synthesis and the production of the virus so to, you know, abolish productive infection. And, um, you know, if we have several different mechanisms that can be combined uh, and do this, I think, you know, in terms of efficacy, we have a, a much higher chance of being successful. But don't forget the practical limits, uh, the availability, the, the price and the safety of, uh, of the, the antiviral drug that should be used to tackle this, you know, massive, uh, widespread, large-scale problem. Well, <clears throat> Philip, I, I had uh, I had some kind of warning. I've been talking about this multiple times. A small-scale warning, like eight nine years ago, with the Ebola crisis, but it was very very similar. What happened there, and uh, you know, but it was small-scale. 
So, uh, but even there, there was no reaction, was no feedback, there was no, uh, you know, acknowledgement of uh, mistakes and, uh, you know, people wanting to correct the situation and, and doing something different. Uh, it's all uh, about large talks about, you know, pandemic preparedness and all these type of things. So, um, yeah, when this thing came, th that was the reason why I was so self-assured to immediately ring the alarm bell because I knew that uh, this is the way things happen and, and that is how it is, you know, managed by even the scientific medical community, etc. So, um, I don't know how we, how we, uh, how we are going to change this, how we can change this. Uh, I personally also disagree that there are 25 different approaches to the science of such a complex problem. Uh, I'm the first to say, okay, we, 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 we had to open the debate. Nobody engaged really in a debate. But on the other hand, I uh, also don't think that there are, uh, as I was saying, 25 different correct approaches. Even if you see what we are talking right now, it seems like we can streamline this and we can narrow this down to very, very clear, very clear and very, <clears throat> very simple recommendations, right? So um, this complexity uh, is, is something that is, uh, looks to me very, very artificial uh, from day one, in fact. And um, yeah, where... I must say I'm not surprised because that is the way, uh, you know, these pharmaceutical companies and, and if, you, if you start making these things, you know, this uh, infrastructure and the hierarchical structure very complex, you, you end up with, you know, some very, very complex solutions that are not really solutions. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I was not surprised. And I knew from the very beginning that uh, even... You know, even though we would cry and, and shout it from the top of the roofs that there was a high likelihood that it would not, it would not really have, uh, have an impact. But now the situation is different because I think right now that there is a lot of people, you know, on the other side that are really panicking about what could possibly happen. Because it's very clear, if, you, if I look right now at the different publications, etc., that there is a number of highly ranked scientists and experts that are no longer ruling out that we may be, you know, we may be um, facing a very, very worrisome and difficult situation with an unpredictable uh, change of uh, of the virus in in a direction that um, that we don't want to see. In fact, and there is no plan B. That is the problem. There is no plan B. Uh, you know, uh, we know that uh, just masking up and lockdowns and it's not going to be a solution. And um, we also know that uh, continuing, um, you know, the vaccination will be very challenging as well if you are facing a very acute uh, situation. Yeah, well, I very much agree with, uh, <clears throat> you know, with regard to what uh, Rob and uh, Shankara were saying with regard to the medical community. But I would also like to call on the scientists because their insights and what they are publishing also has a tremendous influence. And what I've been seeing is that 
for many scientists, this has been just a, a huge opportunity, uh, you know, to make publications and to tease out all kinds of molecular details uh, to make yet another publication. And publications are very, very important. But when you're dealing with an acute situation as the one that we have been experiencing and, and, and that we are still experiencing, I think they have also a very important responsibility and a very important task in, you know, uh, consulting together in order to make, for example, also models that are reliable, that are, you know, uh, taking into consideration several different um, uh, aspects and several different disciplines that has not been done. And I think they uh, also have a huge responsibility and I still hope that they uh, can help us uh, you know, to shift uh, gears. But um, as you were pointing out, Philip, and that's my last point, it is, it is, you know, more than time. I don't know if it is still time because I just wanted to point out, you know, when we have seen this massive wave of Omicron breakthrough infections, remember, it was preceded by sporadic vaccine breakthrough infections due to previous variants. You know, we saw a number of vaccine breakthrough infections already with Delta, etc. And then all of, of a sudden we had this huge wave of vaccine breakthrough infections with Omicron. This is similar to what we are seeing right now. We are seeing already a number of virulent vaccine breakthrough infections, but not a massive wave. But it is the prelude. And I think with regard to what Shankara and Rob were saying, treating people in a prophylactic way with antivirals, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, I think we need to do it now. I don't think personally that we have still time to wait. And it would, of course, be fantastic if uh, we could convince leading authorities of this, um, you know, um, the, the need to do this and, and to act right now instead in of keeping talking. Over. Back here on the Steve Day Show, and we are joined now by, I think, uh, one of the smarter guys I've ever encountered in this business. Tom Woods, he is a best-selling author, has a, a, a fairly uh, prodigious podcast himself, and this is a, a prodigious uh, effort as well. Diary of a Psychosis is his latest book, How Public Health Disgraced Itself During COVID Mania, 400 pages. And I'm guessing, given all that went on those few years, he could have actually written 400 more. Uh, Tom, it is good to have you with us, brother. How are you? Steve, I'm really glad to be here. And incidentally, I'm saying this not just to flatter the host, but you've been unbelievably courageous, not just on this issue, but frankly, in the GOP primary, knowing for a fact that you were going to lose supporters and become uh, less popular than you were, and you just did what you thought was right. I mean, how many people are there like that in the world these days, like 10? I don't know. I, I appreciate that. Or I'm not smart. One of those one of those two. But I, I do. I do appreciate that, Tom. That means a lot, brother. Thank you very much. Um, 
Uh, and, but some good things came out of that, you know, uh, some networks and connections. You know, last night we did uh, our second uh, Twitter space money bomb for a guy I know that, you know, Congressman Thomas Massey. And we've raised in these two uh, just Twitter spaces, you know, just amongst, you know, less than a thousand people. We've raised over sixty thousand dollars for his reelection campaign, you know. And so those relationships and connections uh, and that would have not, you know, occurred without, you know, uh, other people being willing uh, to also swim against the tide. So I appreciate that. Let me say, Steve, by the way, I know it's not what we're talking about today, but what happened to Thomas Massey? is just preposterous the way he's been treated mm-hmm. uh, by Trump followers. It's just incredible. He's he's an extremely impressive person on every level and highly principled and harder core than they are on everything they profess to care about. And the way he's been kicked to the curb is so unbelievably shameful that mm-hmm. I'm really glad to hear about what you just told me. No, well, that's good. To, I, I agree with you. That's why we did it, because he deserves it. Let's get to the book. I want to start with the title. The use of the term psychosis. Why did you choose that term and apply it to this story? I actually got criticized early on by by mental health advocates who thought that I was making fun of people who had psychoses. But at least I can sort of understand people who have legitimate psychoses. I use this word to describe what happened because certainly in my lifetime, Steve, I can't recall a situation in which evidence seem to do so little and in which people seem to be hungry for bad news. I would share good numbers. I would say, look, look at this state that opened up and the numbers are great. Uh, We should all be rejoicing. And it was like people didn't want that. How do you not want good news? Or when I would watch the news coverage of Sweden. Now, you would think people might say, I disagree with the relatively laissez-faire position that Sweden is taking by not locking down, and I think they're wrong, but, you know, let's pray to God that their strategy works because otherwise it could be really bad. They they didn't never, ever talk like that. No, they wanted to fail. It was almost like they were, you know, right? I mean, like they were dying for, for carnage. Like, that's not normal. You're so right about that. And that was one of the pivot points that blew my mind in this story is when the sudden appearance of masks as the panacea for all of this in the summer of 2020. And, and, and I went back and looked at every study that, had, that I could find that's been done in, in recent times, or even going back to the 1918 flu, uh, flu epidemic, where they tried masks there too, and they, they, didn't, they failed in real time. And, and there wasn't a single... I mean, even studies that were done as recently as 2019 were pointing out... Cloth masks are no resistance to respiratory contagions on any level whatsoever. They don't work, which sort of explain why we didn't wear masks every cold and flu season our whole lives. Like in school, when we were growing up, they didn't hand out masks in December. Hey, it's cold and flu season. You know, wear your mask till Easter. You know, they, we, how come we never wore masks? Because they tried it during the Spanish flu. Didn't work. And they've done multi, multitudes of studies for decades that showed it didn't work. And I remember coming in here on the show one day that I was going to lay a bunch of these out. And I thought, you know, people are going to be really fired up to hear this and there was i mean there was a group of people don't get me wrong that were but the amount of people that i also heard from that that said uh, i mean how dare you 
I mean, like they, they, you know, they wanted this to continue. I, our, my producer, Aaron, early on made what I thought at the time was a brilliant prediction that these lockdowns aren't going to last past the first 15 days. I mean, the amount of decadence and debauchery that goes on in this culture that you are denying people their, their access to. OK, I mean, right. we got to have Pride Month, guys. We can't be taking this stuff away. OK. Um, and and right. so he w- I, I thought, you know what, dude, you're right, that eventually the idol of our decadence and debauchery is going to get into our idol of safety and say the safety was good while it lasted but the warm weather's here and commenso festival the opposite happened people gave up the decadence and debauchery in order to stay home and feel safe i mean that there's no way to explain that other than a psychosis actually now that you put it that way and and, you know another uh, um, analogy exactly like that another case of that was the schools Uh, my view was the regime wants the schools to mold the kids minds right right so no we were the ones trying to reopen the schools yes yes and they can't risk having kids go go to homeschooling. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they're going to change course on this. And when they didn't, I thought, yes, something has gripped them because it's not even in their interest to do this. It's in their interest to get those kids back into the indoctrination factories. You mentioned Sweden. I mean, we would sit here and we had no idea if what Sweden was going to do worked. We followed all the data and stuff in real time. And and I remember saying in those days, you know, it's funny. I, I used to do debates. I did a debate in Wichita, Kansas with a uh, opera or with an Occupy Wall Streeter. And Sweden was the answer to all of it. Every time I challenged his assumptions of where uh, what he believed actually has worked in human history, he kept going back to Sweden. You know, and I finally I said to him, if Sweden is so great, why are you here? Why not go live in Sweden? If they're they're the epitome of your belief system, you should try them on for size. So Sweden went from the one they, they, they were the one place that we could they could always try to revert to to show that their schemes, uh, their government schemes actually work. And but but the minute Sweden list started listening to Agnes Tegnell instead of uh, the World Health Organization, it was like Sweden. Rectum barely knew him, Tom. I don't even know. I don't, even know, I don't even know where Sweden is. Is that back? Yeah. Is, that, is, that, is that Sweden back on the bumper, man? I don't even know where it's located. Never heard of the place. I mean, it was amazing. Know, yeah, it is. And and so so Sweden is such a glorious example because I had a chance to visit there uh, partway through all this, and it really was true. I mean, nobody was wearing a mask in 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 Scandinavia in general. Nobody was wearing one. And they were really going about their lives more or less as normal. Uh, the only people I saw wearing masks were Asian immigrants and American tourists. But that that was it. But the, the thing was, we were told, according to the Imperial College model, that by June, they'd have 96,000 deaths. And they had 4,000, so they were off by a factor of 24. But the key thing, I would say, now, look, my book is full of every relentless fact and graph and chart. It's like a sledgehammer on every single page. But if you had to know only two facts that just demolish the other side on this, there are only two you have to absolutely know. One of them is that when all the dust cleared and you look at all the European countries in terms of all-cause mortality, all the deaths and all the trends, Sweden did the best. Now, if you had asked in March 2020, ask any one of these hysterics, if there's a country that just doesn't do this stuff, where do you think it's going to be in terms of outcome? They would have said dead last. Mm -hmm. If it's number one in terms of success, that has to mean you were wrong on some level. The other fact, if I may, Steve, involves the state where I live, Florida. Now, I moved to Florida in 2016. I was lucky. I had no idea what we were in for. And I'm glad that my five daughters were able to, you know, grow up during that period, not in a dystopia. And I'm very grateful to Ron DeSantis for that. 
But the, but here's the key thing. I had an inter- interaction with somebody on Twitter, just a random schmo, who said at some point in 2021, you know, people are all boasting about the accomplishments of Florida, but I look at their numbers and they seem very average to me. And Steve, my response was, well, first of all, they're not very average. They were far, far above average in terms of how good, well we did. But, but I said to him, look, if I had asked you in March 2020, if Florida does the following things, what are their results going to be? You would not have said very average. Right. <laughs> you would have said absolutely catastrophic. Mm-hmm. The very fact that even you today concede that they're, quote, very average shows you were wrong. And in fact, the one thing I have a website for the book, diaryofcovid.com. We have a little video on there. And I insisted to my video guy, I have a clip you have to include. This was one of the few times MSNBC asked a tough question to anybody. They had Andy Slavitt on, who was a COVID advisor. And they said, how come California and Florida, when you adjust for age, they're basically doing about the same. I remember this. And California is locked down a stand and Florida is basically open. What's the explanation? And I thought, oh, my gosh. They finally asked the question, Mm -hmm. what's he going to say? Maybe he's got some answer. You know, maybe there's something up there. Mm -hmm. And his answer was, well, you know, we think we understand this virus, but there are a lot of things about it that we just don't understand. And so he admitted, I have no idea, but we have to continue doing all the crazy things. Well, after it all shook out, if you go back and look at all cause mortality, Florida does better than California. Now, again, if you had asked in March 2020, here's California, their policies, here's Florida, their policies, which one's going to do better in all-cause mortality? They all would have said California, and they all would have been wrong. So that means they were wrong. That's it. That's the end of the discussion. How come no one, and I mean no one, with one exception, uh, the aforementioned Ron DeSantis did apologize uh, early on in 2021 to a, uh, a, a hearing of people who's, you know, bar owners and restaurant owners who were closed temporarily in Florida. Uh, he apologized to them for that. Shouldn't have listened. He said at all. That's a, that's the only example I can think of of anyone that has shown any empathy or remorse at all for their decisions they made during that time. Um, why? Why do you think that is? The only thing I can think of is that famous chapter in Hayek's Road to Serfdom, Why the Worst Get on Top, because unfortunately we are not governed by normal people. I mean, we really are governed by sociopaths who have no normal human empathy. So, I mean, you you remember that we weren't – if you even criticized the policies that were being implemented, you were a grandma killer. You wanted to kill people just so you could get a haircut. And by the way, when Georgia opened in late April, you better believe I got a haircut on it. But, (laughs) but, you know, these are the sorts of things you were told. So, by the way, Steve – when I was writing my email newsletter all through this, I would get emails from people whose families were pitted against each other over this, who had lost family members to suicide or, or missed surgeries or whatever. Uh, their their lifelong work had been destroyed. Their savings had been decimated. And they would write to tell me their stories because nobody else would listen because the sociopaths who rule us didn't ca- – they care about the people. They didn't care about any of these stories. So I do want to add, if I may – that along with this book, I released a companion volume that you get for free at my site uh, called Collateral Damage, in which I asked all these people who wrote to me, would you mind if I collected all your stories that you were not allowed to tell mm-hmm. into a book? Because I don't think anyone's done that. What do we have a book of re- – because you know, you, charts and graphs can only tell you so much. I want a book of these real stories from people who just want to be heard. And so that's at diaryofcovid.com. You pick up my book. You get that 
volume two. And I think, yeah, it's hard to read these stories. They're sad. But we read the stories of totalitarian USSR all the time because we know we need to slog through it because it's important for us to know these things. Well, same thing for these stories that were untellable at the time. I've got about three minutes here. We've had a couple of mechanisms um, recently where the people could have determined that they wanted to hold some folks accountable. In 2022, we had a midterm election, and it ended up being, per capita, one of the most incumbent safe midterm elections in American history. Basically, everybody that did the worst things to everybody and was on the ballot in 2022 got reelected. Everything we're suffering from right now in this country economically comes from the decisions made during the during the time of COVID. And yet, you know, we're having a, a process right now where it appears we're going to have an election where the two guys who did this all to us the first time are going to be the only choices you're going to have uh, in the major parties again in the next election. So, I mean, I agree with everything you're saying about the elites and why no one's apologized. What is wrong with the people that they're not demanding any apologies, Tom? Well, again, just as you said earlier, I thought there's no way this is going to go on that long. People are going to revolt. They can't live this way. It's not fit for a human being. So it's not just the politicians. In some case, cases, like even uh, Andrew Cuomo even hinted in a private conversation that some of what he was doing was driven by the fear-mongering of the people. When, when, when Cuomo, I'm not excusing him by any means, but when he reopened New York, people went berserk. No, we can't reopen. You just told us we'd all die if we reopened. So there was, yeah, the people actually, with the internet, you have no excuse, I feel like. You can find independent dissident voices at the click of a mouse, even with the censorship of big tech. You can find them if you want to. If your life means something to you, if the lives of your children mean something to you, you can find those dissident voices. And when when people didn't, and then not only that, they reelected the people who did all this stuff to them. It, it really, really it, it, it lowered my estimation of mankind. And so I will say a lot of times I know we're running out of time, but a lot of times our side wants to talk, wants to start the story at Chapter 37 about the sinister forces running the world. But where we're going to have to get people is where they are right now, which is Chapter 1, and tell them simply none of it worked. Start there. None of this worked. Mm -hmm. And it it ruined people. It decimated the developing world. Uh, They they were eating rats and snakes in Myanmar for nothing. It accomplished nothing. That's where I'm starting. It's just right there to see if there's still anybody who's reachable with ordinary evidence. It's very well said. Diary of a Psychosis is the name of the book. How public health diagnosed i'm sorry how public health digressed or disgraced itself during covid mania and you want to make sure you check out the website diaryofcovid.com diaryofcovid.com excellent stuff tom thank you brother for your work and and again for the kind words i appreciate it thank you my pleasure steve thanks so much for having me you bet